Well, if you remember seeing that game, that was the greatest comeback, one of the most incredible drives in NFL history in 2010. And what was even more amazing is that the quarterback that ran it was Michael Vick, having an incredible personal comeback, having been in prison in 2007. And in this series playbook, we're going to look at incredible comebacks, how to avoid blitzes, how to overcome incredible odds, how to keep our game at the very top of the game. You know, when I asked Michael Vick, what led you, with all your success, with all of your accolades in life, what led you to be involved in, I mean, a, a dogfighting ring? He said, I let competition drive my life. Competition's a good thing. But when it becomes an ultimate thing, you can never have enough. Even an NFL championship, even an NFL career could not quite feed all the competition he needed. So he had to fund, he thought he had to, fund and have this whole competitive dog ring going on. Which threw him into prison. And what's amazing is it was in prison that Tony Dungy came to visit him. Tony Dungy is a committed follower of Christ. It's amazing that for many of us, we would say competition would never lead me to do that kind of thing. For many of us, the thing that we've turned into an ultimate thing is our reputation. So when there's a scandal, when somebody has something like Michael Vick had happened, we keep our distance from that kind of thing. We don't want the stain of their scandal to spill out on us. What's amazing about Tony Dungy is that Tony Dungy's reputation wasn't his ultimate thing. He, he was able to go and visit with Michael Vick in prison during the scandal and tell him about a God who loves him, a God who would forgive him, and to challenge him that maybe competition had become the ultimate thing that led him to make these bad decisions. Michael Vick became a, Michael Vick became a follower of Christ while he was there in prison and had an incredible comeback, which you just watched, following a personal comeback of replacing a good thing with God in his life. See, in our series, we're going to look at idols, what the Bible describes as idols, which is when we take good things and make them ultimate things. And idols are almost always good things. I remember for me, my good thing isn't competition, it's responsibility. I remember when I was a kid, I always wanted to do the responsible thing, and that's a good thing. But that turned into an ultimate thing for me. I think if I was to trace back where it began, or where I could identify where it began, it was probably 6th, 7th, 8th grade, and I remember my parents were having a fight. I don't remember if this was a week long, a month long. My parents had a great relationship. I remember just being terrified in this one moment. I remember my dad decided to spend the night over at a house we had recently inherited about a mile away. And I remember that my mom didn't seem bothered by that. She didn't seem to be aggressively pursuing this. It seemed like a big deal. I had friends who were getting divorced and uh, or parents were getting divorced and I didn't want my parents to get divorced. And I remember... This feeling, this lie, this thought said, it's all up to you. I remember dragging my mom and my brother and my sister over to that house and watching my mom and dad. And I said, you guys got to talk about this. You guys got to fix this. And we watched as they interacted. And he came back home that night. And for the most part, my parents had a great marriage. But I remember there was something deposited in me that day that I'd already been developing that I took a good thing and turned it into an ultimate thing. And that lie, it's all up to you. You're in charge of other people's behavior. You're somehow responsible for your parents' marriage. None of which my parents intended to put upon me. But I took a good thing and made it an ultimate thing. So five years ago, maybe six years ago now, we went through a series called Free. And in that, we started to identify what are the lies, what are the patterns, what are the good things in your life 
that are actually causing damage to you. My inability to set boundaries, my need for other people's approval, my tendency to enable or rescue other people. It really came from that lie. So I remember, I didn't wear, own these shoes at the time, but I remember writing at the bottom of my shoes that lie. It's not up to me. It's not all about me and the bottom of my shoes. Because I realized that though I called myself a Christian, I was operating with my need to be responsible for everything as the functional God of my life. I wrote in the bottom of my shoes so I could stomp it out during the day. And I remember for about several months, like, it's not up to me. God's in control. I can't handle other people's behavior. I can't change other people's behavior. Over-responsibility will no longer drive me. I memorized a verse from the Bible, from the book of Proverbs. It says, the horse is made ready for battle. And I love that. I love being responsible. But victory is the Lord's. That ultimately God is the one that brings victory. And I found incredible freedom. I heard a story a few months ago. I just revisited from a friend named Jeff that uh, is a friend of a friend. And he shared that he wasn't driven by competition or over-responsibility. His whole life was driven by a fear of failure. And ironically, that fear of failure became his ultimate thing. And ironically, the fear of failure led him to failure. See, when he was real young, his uh, dad owned a very successful uh, company, a wine factory, I believe, or wine um, wine bar in Nashville. They had a lot of celebrities would come visit there. They went to the local country club. But almost overnight, they lost everything. Reputation, success, networks. They were in the middle of a transition of a family business, and as what can often happen, the knives came out, a lot of hurt feelings, lawsuits, the combination of not selling the old business for as much as they hoped, combined with the cost of the lawsuits and the new business, the new partner was embezzling from him, and almost overnight they went from the country club to the breadline. All of a sudden, his reputation, the money, all the things his family had built and made their main thing was gone. He spoke about sitting on his bed with a shotgun in his mouth, early college and saying he wanted to end it all life isn't living worth living without these things that he'd made ultimate things he woke up the next morning with a shotgun in bed mad at himself for not having the courage to do it he had to start working because his dad went into a nervous breakdown and that whole process he began working at a very young age and became the main breadwinner but he had such a fear of failure he did not want to do unto himself and his family what his dad had done he was embarrassed by his dad and he was so scared of failing like his dad that that became the main thing in his life not failing so he got into his first career and every time his career started getting a little shakier he came into a, a challenge he'd be so scared of failing he'd quit before he failed he went through multiple jobs in one year like six or seven every time with the fear of failure being the driving factor of his life he met a woman he would eventually marry her he had a good relationship. He called her one day. They were living down in Atlanta at the time and said, Hey, I just want to let you know I quit my job again today. And she launched into a speech, as you might imagine. You know, it's not about you anymore. It's about us. You've got to be responsible. Well, that triggered his fear of failure as well. He said, Well, when we're done. He got in the car from Atlanta, decided he was going to cash out all his money, head to California to start his new career. No plan. Just head to California. He got to... Montgomery, Alabama, and realized California was an awful long way, he thought he'd spend the night there and maybe start his new life in Florida. He called his girlfriend back, and surprisingly, she took the phone call. He said that was the first time he ever experienced grace, somebody loving him, caring for him, even though he didn't deserve it. And that 
and her faith, and he began to look at the lies in his life, this lie of fear of failing that had been driving him for so long. It had been affecting his relationships, affecting his career. It ultimately drove him back to really discover some things that happened in the past that he needed to deal with and work with that he had never driven out that were keeping him. He ultimately also became a follower of Christ and began to learn what it was like to put God first in his life and how that could bring incredible freedom in his life. So whether it's competition a responsibility, or the fear of failure, what we don't drive out drives us away from God. And many of us have hundreds of these, I have hundreds of these, lies, patterns, things I've replaced in my heart with God. And if I don't learn how to drive these things out, they're going to drive me away from the very things I even care about and want. The book of Judges, what we're going to look at in the series, it's interesting because it's about a team Israel that's incredibly doing well and they incredibly fall apart because they refuse to drive out the things of the past. Here's what it says in the book of Judges. It says, The Lord was with Judah, and they drove out the mountaineers. But they could not drive out the inhabitants of the lowland because they had chariots of iron. This sort of terrorist nation, I'll get into in a moment, had taken over this land for 400 years doing horrible atrocities. And God told to drive them out so that these terrorist tendencies wouldn't spill over for years to come. And they did a little of driving out, but some were too tough to deal with. They had chariots of iron. So they said, ah, it's not worth the effort. It's not worth digging into this. It's not worth working at that. The pattern continues. The children of Benjamin, another group of the 12 tribes, they did not drive out the Jebusites. So instead, these Jebusites dwelt there and they began to tempt and persuade and lead the children of Israel into some very dark practices later because they didn't drive them out. Another group of the 12 tribes, the Zebulun's, nor did Zebulun drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Kalaroi. So those Canaanites dwelt among them and put them under tribute. See, a lot of times we don't dig into what's driving us. We don't sort of find the work to say, why do I keep doing the same patterns over and over again? Because at some level we get paid tribute. You know, it's God said, hey, drive these things out of your life. And they say, yeah, but I get sort of a benefit, a tribute from keeping them in my life. And oftentimes, whether it's holding on to bitterness, we keep it because it pays us tribute. It allows us to be a victim. It allows us to have the adrenaline rush. Instead of driving out the negative things, the negative messages in our head, we hold on to them because there's some benefit that we think is more important than the freedom God offers. We forget to put God first and we forget to drive out. So I'll give you three reasons why we forget to drive these things out in hopes that you and I can find the freedom God wants us to have. That we can actually begin to understand our motivation. Why is it we can't find the contentment we want and long for? That we can have a comeback, a Michael Vick style comeback. That we can keep ourselves from being led down paths we told ourselves we'd never go down when we figure out what's really calling the shots. First reason we forget is because we forget to let God call the plays. It's amazing, early in Israel's history, they're always saying, God, what do you want? How do we put you first? I want the freedom you offer. Tell me what to do. In fact, here's what it says in the book of Judges. It says they asked God what he, wanted to, what he wants to do. After the death of Joshua, the children of Israel asked the Lord, Hey, who shall we fight against? What do you want to do? You call the plays. How do we drive them out? He says, Come up with me to the allotted territory so that we might fight against the Canaanites, and I likewise go with you to your allotted territory. And sure enough, they're asking God. God's calling the plays. They're running the plays. They're being some drives. And God delivered them from the Canaanites and the Pezzarites into their hands. So this early pattern of them saying, we want God to call the play. But there's a cycle that you see in the book of Judges we're going to look at over the next seven weeks. 
And the cycle is this. Team Israel is doing incredibly well. They're having a successful season up here on the far top left. Things are going incredibly well. And when things are going well, they replace God with their success, with their money, with their reputation. And they decide to throw out or ignore God's playbook. We don't need God's playbook anymore. We have success. Our success will be our playbook. Our reputation will be our playbook. Say, God, we don't need you anymore. Thank you. I respect you. It's nice to have you around, but we're not going to let you coach anymore. God says, all right, I'm a gentleman. If you don't want my playbook, I'll step back. I will remove my blockers from your life. And he removes his blockers. And when God removes his blockers, Israel gets sacked by an opposing nation. The Canaanites come back in. The Jebusites come back in. The parasites, the mosquito bites, all of them come back in. And they're like, oh my goodness, why do we throw out the playbook? What happened here? Wow. And so Israel cries out for a new quarterback. God, we need help. And God graciously says, I got a new quarterback for you. They're called judges in that time. They were a spiritual and military and a political leader. And that political leader would lead them back to victory. Incredible success. For years they'd have success and then they would throw out the playbook. Now notice that pattern for a moment. When is Israel most in danger? They are most in danger when they are successful. It is when we are successful that we replace God with something else in our life. We don't think of success as a danger zone, but over and over through this cycle, every time they're successful, they exchange God's playbook for a different playbook. In fact, the book of Judges can be summarized at the end of the book. It says, in those times there was no king. And when there was no king, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Which is another way of saying, when God's not king of your life, something else becomes king of your life. It's usually yourself. And you do what's right in your own eyes. And here's the truth. And you can see it in other people if you can't see it in yourself. When you decide to determine what's right and wrong, you can talk yourself into anything. You can talk yourself into anything. Michael Vick, NFL, all that money. He can talk himself into running an illegal dog ring. You can talk yourself into sacrificing things you never said you would sacrifice. You give up the very freedom you longed for or hoped for. Tim Keller, in his book Counterfeit Gods, digs into this pretty deeply. He mentions a quote from uh, Alexei de Tocqueville who came to visit America. He had a lot of great things to say about America and his other writings, but he was struck by America's ability to put money and success and achievement so high, and yet at the same time having it all, not feeling satisfied. He called it a strange melancholy. He recorded his famous observations on America. A strange melancholy haunts the inhabitants of the land. In the midst of their abundance... Americans believe that prosperity could quench their yearning for happiness. But such a hope was illusionary because the incomplete joys of this world will never fully satisfy the human heart. See, here's what happens. We, we, we think we're modern people. We think these skeptic, we're, we're, we're skeptical of these primitive people in the Old Testament who are building up rock gods and then sac- I mean, literally sacrificing their children to this God. What is wrong with these people? Why can't they be more enlightened like us? We would never sacrifice our kids to some big rock monster or some big god. That's ridiculous. Or is it? 
Remember when Elliot Spitzer had his scandals, the governor of New York? It was interesting that one of the commentators, Dan Brooks, wrote about how he had put his career ahead of all else and sacrificed the very things he said were important. Here's what he said. All culture has produced a class of high achievers with rank-link imbalances. They have social skills for vertical relationships, improving their rank with mentors and bosses, but none for genuine bonding and horizontal relationships with spouses and friends and family. Countless presidential candidates say they're running on behalf of their families, even though their entire lives have been spent on the campaign trail away from their families. As the years go by, they come to the sickening realization that their grandeur is not enough and that they are lonely. Many of their children and spouses are alienated from them and they seek to heal the hurt. That kind of stings, doesn't it? In other words, when you make your grandeur or your career or your achievement your ultimate things, you do exactly and I do exactly what those primitive people do. We sacrifice our children to our real God, our grandeur. We sacrifice our marriage. We sacrifice our health. We sacrifice our recreation because this becomes the most important thing in our life. You see, when God is not your playbook, you always pick up somebody else's playbook. And that playbook drives you. It might be success. It might be busyness. It might be your, your, your looks. But something will become your functional playbook caller, your coach. And that God wants you to be free because God is the one thing that can call the plays that will make you freer. Everything else will put you more into bondage. So why don't we drive these things out? Because we forget to let God call the plays. And Israel does that continually. They forget to remember September. Remember what happened last September we did this. Remember what happened last September we did this. Remember, oh, we had this cycle again. we got to stop throwing out God's playbook. Second reason we forget is we get thrown out by revenge. It's an amazing story in the book of Judges. I'll give you a little background on the Canaanites here. But they get thrown out by revenge. God said, I want you to go in. It's a military group. Uh, the ethics of war. I want you to conquer the enemy, capture him or kill him in battle. But I don't want you to practice war the way the people in this land are practicing war. I want a new day, a new way. But Israel is so driven by revenge, they decide to call the plays in how to do military attacks rather than follow what God said. Here's what it says in the passage. It's a bizarre passage. Then Adoniah, <laughs> then Adoniah Bezek fled, and they pursued him and caught him, and they cut off his thumbs and his big toes. Well, that sounds horrible. And Adoniah Bezek says, 70 kings with their thumbs and their big toes I cut off and used to gather scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. Then they brought him to Jerusalem, and there he died. Now remember, the book of Judges is not advocating what we should do. It's describing what people do when they get away from God. In other words, there is this evil king. One of the reasons God sent the people into this land is because this terrorist group would come into your village and they would purposely maim you. They would cut off your thumbs so you couldn't work. They'd cut off your toes so you could never walk. The evil Canaanites loved to torture and disable people. So God sent Israel in to stop this kind of practice. But instead of Adoniah Bezjek dying in battle, they capture him. And they're like, oh my goodness, should we take him as a POW? 
No, let's do unto him what he did unto us. God did not advocate this. God did not suggest this. In fact, God's pretty angry about this because they are becoming the very thing that they were sent in to stop. They cut off his big toes and they cut off his thumbs. Why? Why would they do this? They were sent in here to stop this kind of practice. Why would they participate in it? Because something became more important than God calling the place. Maybe it was the ego. They wanted to drag him back through town and say, we got him. They wanted their need for revenge. Listen, we're not going to let God be judge or put him in a court of law. We want to show you we did unto him. In fact, he even acknowledges that. The bad guy says, you know, I did this to 70-year people. I guess I deserve it. I guess God's repaying me. You see, when your ego, your need for revenge becomes your functional God, you end up doing things that you actually used to be mad about. They used to say, I can't believe anyone would do that. I would never do that if I went through a divorce. Oh my goodness, I'm treating him that way. Oh my goodness, I'm doing that thing that I thought was so bad. But your need for revenge starts to drive your plays and you start doing things you said you would never do. See, revenge is ultimately a desire to put yourself in the place of God. I'm going to institute justice i'm going to pay back and when revenge becomes your ultimate thing you talk yourself into anything now to be honest i don't watch the nfl very often at all so you're going to find me make all kinds of mistakes in this series i'm terrified about this series because i'm i know i'm going to get quarterbacks and linebackers messed up i'm a volleyball and track guy and but back in the 1980s, I, I loved watching the Bears. It was actually the one year I followed NFL was the one year they went to the Super Bowl. And if you grew up in central Illinois, you both love the Bears and you hate the Green Bay Packers. That's the one thing you know about being from central Illinois. And there was a level of injustice that occurred in the 1980s. When Jim McMahon was up against the Packers, there was a particular uh, guy from the Packers who, Charles Martin, who actually had a towel. I remember seeing his towel. He had numbers like 34, Walter Payton's number, Jim McMahon, number nine, that he said, I'm going to go out there that game and I'm going to maim them. I'm going to destroy them. I'm going to destroy their career. I want to hurt them so bad they can never play again. In fact, that attitude of revenge, not fighting, not competition, but revenge became so driving of him, he made this play. And this play was the first time, I think up to that point, anyone had been immediately dismissed out of a game. Because of this kind of injustice. Let's watch. And you see that, and there's an incredible sense of injustice. I mean, it's one thing to be in a competitive game. That's just unfair. That's just wrong. Well, the things that this terrorist nation, Canaanites, were doing, if you look at them in history, I mean, it was just the stuff you're seeing of ISIS and things like that, it was at that level even more. Again, purposely maiming people and destroying people. And God said, I want you to stop the injustice, not participate in the injustice. But when revenge became their primary playbook caller... They found themselves doing the very things they said they would never do. And this is why God, when he becomes first in your life, when he becomes the source of your playbook, he can rescue you. The freedom from revenging on yourself and from revenging on others. God's playbook. When he becomes number one in your life, you can do that. Here's why. Maybe you've said this yourself. And certainly we've heard it from people before. They say something like this. I've heard that the God of the Bible can forgive me, but... I can never forgive myself. Now, whenever you say that or hear someone saying that, here's what that really means. It's a chance to go deep. When you say to yourself, you can't forgive yourself, you're saying the God of the Bible isn't as important to me as something else that says I can't forgive myself. And so you can go, oh, what is that something else? 
And it's usually something good. I have a reputation of being a good person. And I wasn't a good person in the situation. So I can't forgive myself because who I really serve is my reputation. And I owe, I owe sacrifices to my reputation to make up for what I've done. Thank you, God. That's nice about your forgiveness. But I can't forgive myself because my reputation is who really calls the shots. The reason God's playbook can help you say reputation is important. It's really important. But it's not the number one thing. And by the way, I'm not as good as I think I am. God, you would forgive me. Your playbook, your calls, your voice is more real than the voice of I can't forgive myself because. If you chase that voice, you will find out that you made your beauty, you made your status, you made your performance, you made your money, you made your reputation more important. It's the one really calling the shots. When God becomes your functional God, when he's the one that's really calling the playbook, you stop beating yourself up. You can simultaneously say, what I did was bad. It was really bad. And you look to the cross and say, you know how bad it was? Bad enough that God came and was brutally beaten in the worst possible way in history. And you look at the cross, you look at how beaten he was, you say, that's how bad what I did was, and he had to pay for it. And you don't say, you know, I don't think Jesus was quite beaten enough. See, that's what you're saying when you say that you can't forgive yourself. Jesus wasn't beaten enough. I need Jesus' beating plus a little of my own beating. Well, how long? How much? You'll never be free. Because you could always do more. You always should have done more. But grace and Jesus can free you from revenging on yourself. He can also save you from revenging on others. It was Mary, uh, I remember what her last name was. Mary Kennedy is a science fiction writer. She described how she decided to get free from revenge. One of her best friends was killed by a drunk driver. The day before she was killed, she called up Mary and said, hey, do you want to spend the afternoon with me? And Mary said, no, I really want to finish up some Netflix, a movie that I'm looking to watch. The next day, her friend would be killed from a drunk driver, and she said, I could never forgive myself that I was so superficial that I chose Netflix over what would have been the last day I had with my best friend. So I was angry at myself, and then I followed all the cases as they caught this drunk driver wanting revenge on him. He had no remorse at all. I came to the sentencing hearing. He didn't even look up, didn't even acknowledge he'd killed this woman who I love, my dear friend. And I thought, how do you forgive somebody that doesn't want to reconcile? And I learned the difference between reconciliation, which is two people who want to come back together, and forgiveness, which is I want to be free. And here's why God being judged helps you. I'm going to stop keeping account. I'm going to entrust him to you, God. You take care of being the judge. I can't handle the pressure. I can't handle the ulcers I'm getting trying to put myself in the place of judge. And she talked about the incredible freedom she found when she let God be God instead of her being God in the area of judging. She began to find freedom in revenging herself and freedom in revenging on others. That's what God offers when he's calling the plays. But one of the reasons we don't do that, this is our third reason we forget, is that we get blocked by fear. We get blocked by fear. What's amazing here in the story as it continues is Caleb and Joshua worked with Moses way back in the day. And they were about to enter the promised land. And the people were so driven by fear, they didn't go in. It looked too dangerous. Stop! So for 40 years, one generation had to die and wander because of fear. They were so driven by fear. And that's what anything in your life that's number one besides God will always drive you by fear. I'll try and show that in a moment. So Caleb, (laughs) 
Caleb gets the people together and says, guys, let's not do what our ancestors did. Let's push out these lies. Let's push out these patterns. Let's push out these tendencies. Let's dig in and let's push hard. They're like, oh, I don't think so. I said, no, no. In fact, when we get to Gideon, you're going to find Gideon's life is littered with control issues and fear issues. Jephthah and, and Samson and Ehud. So Caleb's got, I've got to somehow get these people to deal with their fear. So he tries to bribe them out of it. Here's what it says in the passage. He goes, oh, I tell you what, if, if you help drive out the, the Jebusites and the Canaanites, I'll let you marry my daughter. One guy steps up off and out and says, all right, well, I'll give that a shot. And he did, and he drove, drove some people out, and he married the daughter. And the daughter's like, hey, Dad's got more than you think. Let's ask for more. Uh, how about he throw in a field? So he throws in a field. Like, well, that field's not enough. Well, t- tell, tell Dad we need more than that. Tell, tell Dad that we also want um, a blessing. All right, well, that's fine. We'll give him a blessing. Oh, you know what? Let's get more. Let's, how about a, a piece of land with a spring of water? And so they get this whole thing. So instead of just saying, I've got to drive out the ancestors, drive out the opponents, drive out the terrorists because they're evil, or because I want to protect my children and grandchildren, Caleb's got to resort to bribing them to do the right thing, to finally address their fears. But see, Caleb wasn't scared. Caleb already lost 40 years to fear. He was not going to lose another moment, another month, another minute to fear. You might say, well, I'm not really a fearful person. I want to suggest that if we would pause, and we don't pause very often in our life, and we would trace our fears, our fears almost always trace back, if we follow it, to what is really number one in our life. For some of us, the number one thing in our life is accomplishment. And we're scared that we haven't done enough. We don't have enough savings yet. We always said this number would work, and then we got there, and we're like, well, that's not quite enough both in our income and in our savings. It's not enough security. No matter what that number is, it's never enough. It's the field. It's the wife. I thought if I had a wife, it would work. No, okay, I thought if I had a field, it would work. I thought if I had the blessing, it would work. It's just never quite enough. Just to give you a few moments to reflect on some folks who've been real honest about this. This is some few moments maybe of honesty from Madonna, Kevin Pollack in the movie Chariots of Fire. I want you to notice how all three of them will describe how when they put something in their life more important than God, though they were successful, though they had incredible accolades, it was really driven by fear. Madonna says, I have an iron will, and all of my life has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it, And I discover myself as a special human being. And then I get to another stage and think I'm mediocre and uninteresting. Again and again I go through the cycle. My drive in life is always pushing me. Pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I'm somebody. My struggle is never ending. And it probably never will. The driving force behind me is not joy, but fear. Chariots of Fire, one of the main characters is the Olympic sprinter who eloquently articulates the same philosophy. When asked why he runs, he says he does not do it because he loves it. I'm more of an addict, he replies. Later, before running the 100-meter Olympic event, he sighs. Contentment? I'm 24 and I've never known it. I've forever been in pursuit and I don't know what it is I'm even chasing. I'll raise my eyes, I'll look down that corridor, four feet wide, and with ten lonely seconds, I have to justify my whole existence. But will I? 
performance. Good thing. Turned into an ultimate thing and never found contentment. And now it's proving his very existence. Sidney Pollock, who did several movies like Tootsie and others, writes this. Not long ago, before film director Sidney Pollock died, there was an article written about his inability to slow down, enjoy his final years and his loved ones. Though he was unwell, the grueling process of filmmaking was wearing him down. He couldn't justify his existence if he stopped, he said. Every time I finish a picture, I feel like I've done, I, I feel like I've done what I'm supposed to do in the sense that I've earned my stay for another year or so. But then I have to start over. None of those are bad things. Wanting to feel good, wanting to perform, wanting to be liked, wanting to perform well, uh, athletics, wanting to accomplish great things. But when those become the source of your identity, they can never bear the full weight of your full identity and existence. And therefore, you're scared of losing it or scared of not doing enough. There's a C-suite coach who wrote about the addiction of our time is not alcohol, it's achievement. She says it this way. Achievement is the alcohol of our time. These days, the best people don't abuse alcohol, they abuse their lives. You're successful, so good things happen. You complete a project, you feel dynamite. That feeling doesn't last forever, and you slide back to normal. You think, I've got to start a new project, and that's still normal, but you love the feeling of euphoria, and it becomes your functional God, so you've got to have it again. The problem is you just can't stay on that high. Say you're working on a deal and it doesn't get approved. Your self-esteem is on the line because you've, you've been gathering your self-worth externally. She continues. Next slide. Eventually, in this cycle, same cycle of judges, you drop to the pain level more and more often. The highs don't seem quite so high. You may win a deal that's even bigger than the one that got away, but somehow that deal doesn't quite take you to euphoria. Next time, you don't even get back to normal. Because you're so desperate about clenching the next deal. An achievement addict is no different from any kind of addict. Oh, that's hard to hear. Because these are not people who did bad things. These are people who took good things and made them ultimate things. And they produce fear and discontentment because they just can't fully satisfy. That's what idols are. Good things. We turn into ultimate things. See, an idol is something you love that drives you and crushes you by fear. How could something you love that you've sacrificed your marriage for, you've sacrificed your hobbies for, you've sacrificed much of your health for, how could something you love sack you, crush you? I don't know if you remember John Lynch. He retired now. Great guy, but there's a incredible scene in one of the... One of the uh, one uh, game he played where he goes back-to-back -back with his brother-in-law. So imagine, you're back-to-back -back with your brother-in-law. And John is known as a guy who loves to sack and sack hard. And now you're the brother-in-law, and someone you love who married your sister is out on the field with you. How does he feel about sacking you? How does he feel about watching you get hurt? Let's watch. Well, John's a good guy, but how could something that you love, do that and just walk away. That's how things besides God work. The very thing that drives you to accomplish great things, work out hard because you love looking beautiful, but then the minute you start getting old, that same thing that you love, that you sacrifice for, you have all that time of working out for, and it's the very thing who says you're not good enough anymore. 
and the fear of I'm never going to be good enough. And the fear of I can't ever live up to that. And oh my goodness, I can't speak for you, but for me, I'm getting uglier every day. This is as good as I'm ever going to look. Is it? I told a couple teenagers over at my house last night, I said, you know, if you get married for looks, just know that on the day you get married, that's probably the best you're ever going to look. If my wife married me for my hair, she's in trouble because it's going, it's going fast these days. You see, an idol is something good, but it doesn't drive you by love. It drives you by fear, fear that you've never done enough or fear that you're not going to be able to keep up the game in the rat race. When you make your career the thing that calls your plays, you'll ultimately sacrifice your health and your family. If you make sex the number one thing, not a good thing, but an ultimate thing, you'll get into addiction because you'll need kinkier and kinkier, harder and harder hits to try and attach that, to suck out of sex your whole identity. If it's your marriage, you turn your spouse into your God. They will eventually get worn out because they cannot live up to your expectations. And suddenly the thing you love, your marriage, will begin to fall apart out of resentment and stress because the two of you just cannot fully satisfy. You can't get your full identity from something even good like marriage. Money. There's never enough savings. There's never a number that brings the contentment you're longing for. Sports activities, busyness. I know so many couples who say, oh, we're doing this for the kids. We're doing this for themselves. And yet, after weekend after weekend, activity after activity, no margin in their life, and the marriage ends in divorce because they grew away from each other because sports became the number one thing in their life. What we do not drive out will drive us away. So what's the response to this? It's we've got to hit rock bottom, find out what's driving us before it's too late. Go back to that, that cycle again. Again, when was Israel in trouble? They were in trouble when they were successful. They were trouble when they were at the top of their game. So the secret is to hit rock bottom up top. I want to hit rock bottom when things are going successful. Oh my goodness, God, I got more money than I ever thought. I got more reputation than I ever want. Things are going incredibly well. My family's obeying more than they ever have. This is great. Oh my goodness, I'm in trouble. I'm going to make my kids' obedience the source of my identity. I'm going to make my marriage a source of my identity. God, help me when I'm successful. I've got to hit rock bottom. I don't want to exchange your playbook for my playbook. Help me. Because you can go through the cycle, and you can hit rock bottom down at the rock bottom when you get sacked by a divorce, when you get sacked by something you told yourself you'd never do, and you're like, God, help me. And God will come to you and say, I want to help right where you're at. But the secret of life is hitting rock bottom when you're at the top of your game. And not forgetting who God is. And not forgetting that He's the one that can bring the things that you're after to begin with. Robert Griffin III was used to being paraded and celebrated. And yet he had an injury that just totally destroyed his next season. One of his coaches quoted by saying, this is a guy who's used to walking into the room and being paraded, celebrated. And the problem is when he had an injury, his whole life, his whole identity was caught up in the fact that he was celebrated. And now that he can't live up to his old performance, he's not able to rise again. In fact, look what the coach said. His coach said, The reason is the injury slowed his legs, but it was his ego that would not allow him to hit rock bottom and grind his way back to the top. How many times in my life is it my ego that says, God, I know better than you. I don't want your playbook. I don't want to forgive. I don't want to give. I don't want to be kind to them. I want revenge. Hit rock bottom while you're still at the top. And if you do, you can have a comeback like Michael Vick and we can rise again. You know, God wants us all to find incredible freedom 
I don't know for you what it is you want to look at. For me, I've made responsibility into my, my big thing. Other times in my life, I've made approval or my performance. I used to get crushed by criticism after a message because the message became my master over me. Instead, I said, I want to do a great job. I want to improve. I want to hear criticism. But I'm not defined by what I do. I'm not defined by how I act. And when I, instead of having those things over me, I put those things under me, I found incredible freedom. And I hope you can too. If you came prepared to give today, there's some offering boxes on the way out. If you're new to the church, we'd love to put a name with a face. The third door on your left is the hearth room. Thanks for joining us today as we start our new series, Playbook. We'll see you next week as we continue the journey. Thanks again.